2020, only a third of 18 to 24-year-olds said that they thought everyone in Britain today had a fair chance to progress in society. Social mobility is a complex subject to address, so this week we're turning to two experts in the field. Cara Archibald, Programme Manager at the Avenues Youth Project, and Eddie Fletcher, Head of Social Mobility at the Ministry of Justice. We discuss the importance of creating a level playing field, how to make the best use of apprenticeships, and how a cooking class can teach vital real-world skills. Let's get the full picture. This episode explores what we can do to boost social mobility and break those deep-rooted cycles of class inequality. One of the things that we can do is by running youth projects and giving people opportunities from disadvantaged backgrounds the chance to have success in life. Carol, you are the Programme Manager at Avenues Youth Project. Could you tell us a little bit about how you became to be in this role and how you joined Avenues? Okay, um, it's a, a bit of a kind of like swings and roundabout story. I started going to the Avenues when I was 15 years old. Um, and um, it was a place that was a lot of fun. There was like 80 to 100 young people there every evening. Um, back then, it used to be open throughout the day. Um, so young people who were out of school or had just left school, um, it was somewhere that they could go to. It was a safe haven, somewhere that they could go and meet with connect workers, places like that. I got into youth work um, via volunteering. I started to go back maybe one or two evenings a week. Um, Carol Bent, who was my youth worker, asked me to come and help organize the fashion show. And that was the hook. Um, once I got in there, um, I just never left. It literally um, pulled me in because I was one of these people who thought, oh, youth clubs, glorified babysitting service. It's where <laughs> people go just to play table tennis. And it's so much more. Once you're in there and you see the actual work, um, you can't help but be committed. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons that Avenues has a very low turnover of staff. Um, I started as a volunteer, as I said, but I then went on to be a youth work, a paid youth worker. I did a level two in youth work. Um, and then I was panicking and rushing from work every evening to try and get to the youth club. Um, so I decided that I was going to um, take up the position of, um, I think it was, yeah, the finance, facilities and finance manager mm -hmm. um, at the youth club. Um, at this point, I was expecting my third child. Um, and after I had her, I decided I wasn't going to go back to my old job. I was going to stay at Avenues. Um I then went back to university and studied for three years, um, doing a youth work degree. Um, my youth worker advised me to do that. And then as soon as I had um, graduated, he retired and basically said, here you go. <laughs> Here's the job. You're more than capable of doing it. And he's still with the organization. So he's still there to go to for advice. Um, and guidance when I need it. But that's basically my journey. So from a member to program manager. That is so brilliant to see that, yeah, you started there as a member and now you've done a full 360 and you're working there and you're working with people. Yes. Are you working with people that were your teachers and your coaches and program managers when you were a member or have they, have they since left? 
So Carol is my one constant. He um, he was there from the first day that I walked through the doors um, until now. So he is um, he really is a kind of um, outstanding force within Queens Park as a youth worker. He's touched a lot of young people's lives, um, and yeah, he's basically still there. That's so incredible. And it's definitely not a place that you go just to play table tennis, although you can. And you can also do radio classes. You can do DJ sessions. I'm very jealous. It seems like an incredible (laughs) place, but you really do. um, I mean, I was looking on your website and it says that your mission is to give hope and opportunities to children and young people in West London so they fulfill their potential and leave prepared and excited for adult life. And, And you definitely do that. And from our previous conversation, it seems like you've inspired so many young people And as you said, you started going there at the age of 15. So I would be interested to know, if you don't mind sharing with us, what was your childhood like? Because I know that the Avenues Youth Project is a place for people from disadvantaged backgrounds that maybe don't have the opportunity. So did you have that as a childhood or were you just desperate to go because it seemed like such a fun place to be? So I was really fortunate in the sense that um, we we weren't disadvantaged in the way that some young people are. We did get to go on holidays and we did get, um, we did know that we had some things that other young people didn't. Mm -hmm. But what I didn't have was sisters. I have seven brothers and um, I didn't have any sisters. (laughs) So it was just me. And um, Avenues gave me that, that sisterhood. It gave me a place where I wasn't just somebody's little sister. I was Carol in my own right. Um, without my brothers. Um, I It offered me new skills. I learned to bake there. I learned photography there. Um, they offered so much training. Um, every time they would say, does anybody want to do a health and hygiene course? I'd be like, me. Does anyone want to go on a residential? Me. <laughs> and it was, it just gave you this, this real family feel. And mm. although I come from a, a quite a big family, um, it was a different experience for me because I was allowed to, you get in a big family, you get lost sometimes um, within your siblings and where you sit within those age ranges. But mm-hmm. in avenues, you you really are an individual and the youth workers see you as an individual and not just another young person that walks through the door. I bet your parents never saw you. You were probably there all the time. You're like, I'm with my sisters. <laughs> don't want to be with my seven. I don't know how you were raised with seven brothers. That is crazy. <laughs> That's brilliant. There is so much incredible work that you do at the Avenues Youth Project. You do set people up to have the best start of life. And, and you do also give them all of those firsts that you said you had so many firsts that you experienced, like baking mm. and, and, and building that sisterhood. What, what other work do you do at Avenues? and and what sets you apart from other youth projects? So we're really fortunate. We own our building Mm -hmm. and that put us in a really good position. Um, When the cuts were made by Westminster for the youth services, um, there were a lot of youth clubs that had to close because they couldn't afford the rent or couldn't afford to pay youth workers or it just wasn't feasible for the funders that were funding them to fund the whole programme. So although we had to really reduce our timetable, we had to make some difficult choices with regards to staff and opening times. We were able to keep our doors open. So I think that's one of the the unique things about about the avenues. Um, I think 
another thing about youth work in general is that what people see on the surface is all the fun stuff. They see the cooking lessons and the chefs coming in and they see music and, and radio and design and technology and all that kind of stuff. And that's what we want the kids to see. That's we that is their their experience for it to be fun. But what lies underneath that is the youth work. And I think that's the pl- that's the place that a lot of people don't understand um, with regards to the type of work that is done. So we might be running a cooking program, but that cooking program, um, the outcomes for that might be around um, communication skills and teamwork. And mm-hmm. it might be about um, building up um, greater resilience and confidence in a young person. It might be something where we're, we're trying to target a certain group to look at catering or, or being a chef as a career choice. And those sort of things um, need a lot of planning. They need a lot of funding. And we, are, we focus a lot on monitoring and evaluation to make sure that, yes, it is a cooking lesson, but what, we, what is coming out of it is, number one, value for money. Number two, that the young people are getting what they need. So they're obtaining these new skills. They're becoming confident. Um, and that we're actually putting them in a, a position where they can walk away and, and potentially start applying for jobs around that field. Um, mm. Young people who are about to leave home, they're learning how to look after themselves in those cooking lessons. They're learning how to budget. They're learning how to... Um, basically not kill themselves by keeping food at a certain temperature in the food in the fridge <laughs> how, how to eat healthily and not live on baked beans on toast it's all of those type of things that lay underneath that um, another aspect of youth work is that we do a lot of mentoring mm-hmm. um, we mentor young people from the age of eight right up until the age of 18 we do a lot of transition work so when you say transition work to people, they tend to think it's just transition from primary school into secondary school. But this might be transitioning from um, a child into a teenager and then a teenager into a young adult. Um, it might be transitioning from um, living with your family and having issues because mum and dad have got a divorce and now you're transitioning into a new lifestyle um, where dad's not there or mum's not there. So it's it's kind of like working close with other organizations who can who we can support so social services early help um all these type of things even even the youth offending team so that we can provide um a informal service to those organizations and the young people and their families to um to help and and ensure that that young person is kind of like going on the pathway that they that they want to I really agree with that, that children lead such complex lives and not just children, but also it's difficult for people to understand like who is that mentor? Who is that person that they can speak to? Because often they don't feel comfortable to speak to their parents. And when they're at school, I mean, for instance, my sister is a teacher and and she feels it's really difficult because she's trying to give these kids an education, but she also sees that some of these children are struggling. So she also has to become their mentor. And, And so it's brilliant that these young people can come to a youth club like Avenues where they can actually have people that are designated to helping them and giving them these underlying lessons that they are completely unaware that they are learning when they are just baking a cake Mm. (laughs) and all of these incredible things that they will take into their adult life so that is that is so brilliant 
you mentioned the youth offenders and I think I would love to touch on this topic because it is something that we spoke about previously. There are children that come to Youth Avenues Project like yourself that want to come to have a sisterhood, to have those first, to experience all of these different skills. But there are also some children who unfortunately end up in the wrong crowds and need avenues to get themselves back on that right track. When we spoke, you did say that every child has the right to have a childhood and being in a gang takes away that childhood. Do you have any stories that you could share with us, Carol, that you have witnessed a child who was going down the wrong track and avenues have helped them put them back on that right path? Yes. So um, we work with with various young people. Um, Like I said, we do run sessions that are age appropriate um, and we're exposed to both inside the club and when the, when we go out and do outreach, mm-hmm. um, some young people that are going down the, the wrong path. Now, engagement with those young people can start either inside the club or predominantly outside the club. Those young people don't access the service. So the work that is done with them is on the estates. It's where they reside. Um, and you try to get them into the club so that you can um, get them to engage in positive activities rather than being on the street and vulnerable to all that the streets has to offer. Mm-hmm. Um, I think one of the young people that comes to mind for me is a boy that um, I worked with for three years. Um, it took three years for us to get to the point where he is at now, Um so proud of him because he will say things like I couldn't have done this without you but literally I just pointed him in the right direction and and did some tough love which is nope you need to get up now um and it was things like um he had gone to prison um and the day that he came out of prison he came straight to us at the youth club and was like we need to we need to do this otherwise I'm going to end back up in prison again mm-hmm. um so we wrote down all the things we had to do for his sort of like his life. So opening up a bank account, trying to find housing, um, would wake up early in the morning and go down to the housing office so that we were first in the queue um, and get him onto the, the housing list. We eventually managed to get him a hostel. Um, so that was one thing ticked off. Um, also looking at his health, making sure that he was registered at a doctor's. Um, and then the other side of it was... This guy, he was so intelligent, super intelligent. And he basically was wasting that. So we tried to get him into back into full-time education, um, which he didn't want to do. But what he did want to do was start his own business. Right. So we supported that um, and he started his own business. And then from there, from he, he persevered with it and it just started to take off. And when one thing started going right, everything started falling into place. So he eventually did go back into um, adult education and is studying um, psychology. He's in his last year. Wow. Um, so he, he's gone from being no direction, being with the wrong crowd, to being super independent. Um, he, he literally has the focus... Um, that I, I wish I had. <laughs> He's achieved so much um, in that three years span. And and this is just having, what he has said is that it's the consistency. It's having somebody mm. that 
is going to help him and that it's not just about the money. We're not doing tick boxes. We are getting up and going to the housing office with you. We are looking at courses with you. We're not um, pandering to your every need. We are giving you that tough love and saying, look, time is money and, and we don't have the time to waste if you're not going to be serious about what it is that you're doing. Mm. Um, but with that, you you can get the successes. Um, you just have to be quite dedicated to what it is that you're doing. Yeah. You must feel like a proud mother watching these young people grow up and those success stories that you shared with me. That must make you feel so, so proud um, to be involved in their life and to help them with their positive change. But you are a mother Mm. to three children, as you pointed out. So how (laughs) do you separate that from getting too emotionally attached to these young people that you work with and then also being able to be a mother to your own children and come home and leave? work behind because it must be a very Mm. consuming job um it is and it's not something that you learn straight away I went through a period of time where I was very emotionally attached to a group of of young people and um and you just never ever switch off Mm. uh, which isn't healthy but over the years you learn to reflect on your practice um and the staff team at Avenues is amazing I mean I know that you would expect me to say that, but they genuinely are. And um, there is no no personal wins. It really is a team effort. And I think if you are the type of, like the way that I manage now is very different to the way that I used to manage. I used to have this whole kind of thing about, I need to rescue these young people and I need to save the world and I need to do all of this. But then you get to a point both physically and emotionally where you are just completely burnt out. Yeah. And, and you learn that you do have to spread the load. You do have to share the work. It's not up to me to save anyone. I, I can't save anyone. They have to want to save themselves. And then I can support that um, with our team of youth workers at, and mentors at Avenues. Um, with regards to my own children, um, I think my eldest two, they very much saw my passion for the work. And both of them, I mean, my, my eldest, she's a deputy head teacher. Um, she wow. came up through the avenues and she was um, she started as a youth worker. Um, she now teaches our level one in youth work on a Saturday at the youth club. But like I said, she's also a deputy head at a school. And um, my my younger my middle child she works in the A and R department at St Mary's, so they've all gone into these sort of caring professions where you work with people, and all of that is because of because of avenues because it's kind of like embedded that that work ethic into them um, and that that desire to help people. Um, so yeah, they kind of understood. Um, my youngest one now she gets the best of me because I'm very very. Um, conscious of spending time with her and and not being at work all the time Um, because the world that they're growing up in is very different to what my other two grew up in. There's a a huge age gap, like 17 years, but um, it's a very different place. And I think that as a parent, sometimes what we do is we say, my child is becoming older, so I need to take a step back. But 
in this environment, I don't think that's the right thing to do. You do allow them their independence, but Mm -hmm. taking a step back at this point when they're just becoming teenagers, um, you need to be able to know what's going on and you need to be a part of your child's life so that when they're making their choices, they're making, they're, they're considering you in those choices. So you're that voice in their ear that's saying, yeah, that might not be a good idea. Or I hear um, my mum's <laughs> voice all the time. It's so annoying, but it's true. Job done. <laughs> job done. I know she's done her job very well. I'll, I'll be doing yes. something and I can just hear Izzy, stop. Yeah. <laughs> like, Sorry, <laughs> mum. Yeah, I think it's not until they kind of go off to college or wherever where you kind of like take a, a, a yeah. really big step back. But I do think you need to be present. And um, I'm very fortunate that Avenues allows me to parent my daughter in the way that I want to parent her. Um, as my, my working hours are quite flexible, um, I know that it, I do acknowledge it's super difficult for some parents who have got to work one, two, even three jobs. Um, and they're, they're doing the best that they can. But this is why youth clubs are so important, because instead of the child being at home by themselves or with their siblings, they can come to youth club. Mm. Um, our after school club, we have, they come along, they have tea, so they have a sandwich, a packet of crisps and fruit, a drink um, to hold them until dinner time. And then they go and they do activities. And those activities range from t-shirt design to, like I said before, cooking, um, lots and lots of sports, um, lots of workshops. Um, our Tuesday girls group, which is just for girls, they're focusing on sleep at the moment because a lot of the girls um, said that their sleep pattern had been disrupted because mm-hmm. of COVID. Um, so they're exploring essential oils and looking at teas and sleep patterns and all this type of thing. Um, and, and this is what's there for the taking. And, and the most important thing about it is that it's free. There is mm-hmm. no cost. All you need to be is a member of the, of the club and then you access all of this stuff for free. We don't charge. This episode is around social mobility and breaking those deep-rooted cycles of class inequality. Eddie, you are now Interim Head of Social Mobility at Ministry of Justice, so I'd love to know, what was your upbringing like? Quite a bizarre upbringing, I guess, for a civil servant. So um, my father, my grandfather, was an unemployed labourer in a steel factory. So uh, a labourer in a steel factory is the lowest the, the, you know the, the lowest employment role he was an unemployed one so um my father's upbringing was pretty um pretty working class to a certain extent but he was in te- incredibly intelligent so he won a scholarship he stood, he went to a grammar school won a scholarship uh, went to oxford university um did very well and became a professor so so my upbringing was one of with two halves so Whilst my dad was a professional, so that would that would put me in the in the privileged category. One step beyond or or backwards was very much a working class um, background, and my father's roots were very working class, so he never moved away. He got the opportunity to work at Oxford and be a lecturer, but he chose not to. He stayed local into the, in the Midlands, um, so came from a, came from a very working class area and chose to stay there. And his background was very much around industrial archaeology and 
the Midlands, the black country, which it's called. Um, he's He was very much into that. So that was ingrained into myself and my brother um, throughout our whole life. So whilst we had a, a slightly more privileged upbringing in terms of the, the household income um, was not a low income, our mm-hmm. upbringing was very much working class. I went to a comp- the local comprehensive school. There was no discussion about going to a different kind of school. Um, so a working class upbringing in a slightly non-working class background. That's really interesting that your dad obviously came from that lower socioeconomic background, but then became successful through his job, but almost wanted to stay rooted to his background and not move away from, from where he was born. Do you feel like that has affected your life growing up and you always remember where you came from and you're always remembering what your grandfather went through? I think so. I think it, I think at the time, it was just life. It was, you know, mm-hmm. as, as, as same as most people. That's just the upbringing. When you start to reflect on it, as I've as I've been doing probably in the last fifteen years, more realistically, because my father died when I was relatively young. He was I was twenty four, so he died Gosh, at sixty. So, so um, I've had a chance to reflect on it. I've got children now, so you you tend to reflect on the on those things. And I think mm-hmm. it's it's about that opportunity word that we we talk about. And he had opportunities that he took there weren't mm. many but he his his educational background and he, and his cleverness took him in that direction he had that aspiration that drive he came from a working class background but he still had that aspiration and that drive and i think you know we we think about talented individuals and and, and as, as people from who have got very high education or come from a, a particular kind of background and and that's that's kind of driven my career direction at the moment recently and it's talent is everywhere potential is everywhere it's just tapping into it and, and enabling it to 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 appear and to be and manifest itself in something that's more useful mm. that's what's driven what I do I think now I'm sure your dad would be very proud of what you're doing, Eddie. And you have told me previously that the reason why you do what you do and the reason you feel so passionate about social mobility is the idea of fairness. Why is that something that's so important to you? I think, again, that stems from from that upbringing about realising that everybody should have a chance. You know, Mm -hmm. not everybody is capable of doing every single job. You know, I'm certainly not going to be a brain surgeon that would be the worst <laughs> thing we want to happen however you know everybody has potential everybody has got that talent in them and if we're not allowing people to either use that talent or, or at least show that that talent or, or practice that talent then that is unfair I think my where I also come at it from a from a perspective, from an organisational perspective. So I always tend to try and balance everything from you know the head and the heart kind of thing. So my heart is telling me, you know, it's it needs to be fair. Everybody needs to have a chance. We're all human beings. We're all got potential, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. From an organisational perspective, I tend to tend to think about we need to have that fairness in our organisation to be a better organisation, to be the best we can. We need talent from all walks of life. If we have an unfair system where we're promoting people or progressing people or recruiting people unfairly, that doesn't ring true with me. It doesn't. It makes my. It it it, it makes things feel 
unfair and I don't like that feeling. So that, that element of fairness, I, try to, I tend to try and bring through everything that we do within our organisation. So you spoke to me, Eddie, about your upbringing. I would love to know about this fairness that you're talking about, though, when you came into the world of work from school. Did you face any unfairness? I'm just trying to understand and get to the root of why you are so passionate about fairness and why it is so important. So entering the world of work, I was probably lucky. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, Again, reflecting back on it now, I've got white white male privilege. I came from a, a background that was not privileged, but certainly not working class. I had people around me who were professionals, so I had that kind of aspiration and that confidence that comes with that. So entering the workplace, looking back, uh, that, that got me in. Mm-hmm. What I saw once I was in was that there were people around me who were being promoted that were either not as talented or not didn't have that potential than other people, not just me. It wasn't so much I wasn't getting promoted. I've never been career-driven that much. But there were other people that were not getting that opportunity, not being progressed, not given that chance, not helped their confidence being building their confidence or their aspiration and that that stuck with me throughout my job and a line somebody once said to me a long time ago that that person has been promoted to incompetence i.e they were not very good at their job so they were promoted to a, to another level so they were just incompetent and i that has stuck with me for a long time and i you know i always wanted to build that into the organization to make that a fair system to get the best people into the best positions basically I read that in 2015, you developed and led the Ministry of Justice Apprenticeship Strategy for 80,000 staff in response to the government's apprenticeship levy. Why was this such an important strategy for you to lead? So the the change, so apprenticeships were funded centrally, now they were funded by business. So put in the, the, the levy put the emphasis more on the, on the organisation um, to, to use apprenticeships. For me, I always had a problem with the word apprenticeship because, you know, coming from the era that I came from, it was very much the third class citizen kind of thing. Oh, you can't do, oh, you can't go to university. You haven't got enough qualifications. Oh, you better do an apprenticeship. So mm-hmm. I've always had a problem with the word apprenticeships, but, and, and that's something that has, has, has run through what we've tried to do with apprenticeships. However, broken down, an apprenticeship is a development program that you do on the job. So you're building experience and you're building your, your your educational knowledge as well. So your theoretical knowledge. So it gives you that ability to, to become good at your job, reflecting by using knowledge that you're gaining from an external area. It's the most perfect thing for me. It should be the default option for people in an organization. When you start in an organization, you're on an apprenticeship, whether you like it or not, you do an apprenticeship because that gives you that ultimate building block of this is the organization how it works and we know that every organization can be better and you take this external theoretical element that allows you to challenge that so you build in your new recruits or your, your new employees to understand the business but also to challenge it in, an, in a constructive manner so that was always the way that we wanted to use apprenticeships within the civil service and within the ministry of justice 
it becomes difficult because they're called apprentices, apprenticeships. So people said, well, I'm, I've been in the job 10 years. Mm. I'm, I'm not an apprentice. Actually, it's a development program that you use that da, 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 helps you progress. So it's been, a, it's been a long road for us to get to a position where we, people are comfortable with using the word apprenticeship and saying, yes, well, it's a development program that allows me to progress. And the organization has to be comfortable with that as well. It's a big organization of 80,000. It's, you know, it's diverse in its range of, <laughs> of roles, obviously. But, you know, using that as a development program is just the ultimate for me. And where it fits into social mobility. So we know that people from lower socioeconomic backgrounds, A, are less likely to go to university. And B, when they go to university, are less likely to get a high level qualification. Mm-hmm. It's a perfect thing, you know, coming to an organization with just A-levels or just your GCSEs, you're still in the education system. Having that learning program, it teaches you how to challenge and, and in a constructive manner. I just think they're the, the best thing for me and they're just not used enough. Yeah, and I, you are right. There is that stigma around being in an apprenticeship because, as you said, if you've been in that industry for a while, you think... Well, I'm higher than that, but it's the idea of you can always develop your skills, you can always keep learning. And people that, as you said, maybe didn't perform to their best capability at university can be given that second chance to prove themselves and to actually earn the grade that they really deserved. And you mentioned that you have been working in social mobility at the Ministry of Justice since 2017. And in that time, you've tried loads of different tactics and you said that some have worked and some haven't. And I think that's really brilliant that you've been honest to say that some of the tactics that you've tried tried have failed because how are we to learn if we haven't failed if you don't mind telling us which would you say was the biggest failure of those tactics that didn't work um oh, oh so many failures to go through where, where, where do I start um the biggest has been our... <laughs> how long do we have yeah yeah <laughs> I think the biggest has been the approach that we took with social mobility Something that seemed so absolutely, it, this makes the most sense in the world. Why would anybody not agree that this is the way to do something? You know, have a diverse workforce, blah, 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 blah. The biggest, biggest mistake was my assumption that that would be the way that everybody thought about social mobility. Um, we, that, using that assumption to get a message out was totally incorrect and probably set us back a year uh, realistically by just that wrong approach actually engaging with people who are from privileged backgrounds who don't understand the social mobility issue at all because just because they don't and it's not a, a criticism my assumption that they would disabled us for about 12 months however reflecting talking to people, engaging with people and saying, what have I done wrong? And understanding how our approach should be different has enabled us to, to move that social mobility agenda on considerably quicker. You know, having that buy-in. Common questions that were asked were, well, I'm not from a lower socioeconomic background. That means I'm bad. So we've got our messaging so wrong that people who were from privileged backgrounds thought we were out to get them. When actually the whole message is we want a diverse workforce that's got everybody in it, not just this section or that section. It's got to be a blend of everybody. And that approach 
has now borne fruit. We, we get good traction. We're allowed to try things because we try and fail. You know, one of the big areas is the data that always comes up with social mobility. When we started this journey, there wasn't any data realistically, certainly not at, at an organizational level. So we were allowed to try things to build data. So we think this is an idea. We'll try it, such as going out and talking to universities who are not red brick and getting some interns into the organization. Let's see how that works. Didn't work so well first time, but we learned from that and we were allowed allowed that leeway to fail. So, you know, getting your approach right and your messaging right at the start is critical. It's about a diverse workforce, not one section of the workforce is more important than another. Throughout this podcast, we're trying to learn from people how we can make a change in the workplace. And something that you said previously to me that really stuck out is that we're all talking about it, but not acting on it. So what would you say are some simple steps that you think organisations can take to act on the subjects of social mobility in hiring a more diverse workforce from all different backgrounds? So when I talk to organizations at the moment, they're trying to, they have a very grand idea, which is brilliant. They have a big strategy that says, we're going to change our workforce, which is, which is always good. And I like grand ideas. However, it's those small steps. And, you know, in many organizations, we'll say the blocker has always been, well, we haven't got the evidence to say what we should do or not do. And that's a fair challenge. My my challenge back to that is build your own evidence then. Have a go. Start small. Try something. We know what the key issues are. We know that people from lower socioeconomic backgrounds don't get into organizations as 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 well as those from more privileged. We know they don't progress. We don't we know they don't hit senior r- r- levels so much. So we know that. There's data out there. Just try something. Have something. Go and speak to some schools, colleges, universities. Step one, just go and do it. You will build a rapport and understanding. Then go and get somebody in your organization, have work experience. So have a have a work experience process that's fair, fair again. So make sure that you give them their dinner money when they're here. You make sure that they can get to the, the office. You know, you give them their bus money. It's small, small change for a big organization, but A kid can't go and do work experience if they can't get to the office because they haven't got the bus fare. Mm. Somebody from a more privileged background can. Oh, daddy will take me or mommy will take me. I'm being flippant, I know. But, you know, we've got got to make that that fairness route for people to get into the organisation, make it as fair as possible. But just do something, anything, you'll do it and it'll make a change. It'll build awareness in your organisation and then somebody will say, shall we do this? Should we do this? And it will grow from there. Yeah, just start. And as you've said today, don't be afraid to fail because people will fail. But as long as you're doing something, then you are taking one step further towards creating a more diverse workforce. And you can you can reduce the failures as well. Learn from other people. You know, we we have an open an open folder policy. That's I've just made that up. Um, You know, (laughs) you can see anything that we've done. We don't hide anything. It's not. Ministry, it's not civil service, you know, you can't, obviously there's some things we have to keep within, but the strategy, it's out there. Anybody can, I talk to anybody, I do anything to just get the message. You can share what we've done. I'm going to steal whatever I can from anybody else, because if I see it being done 
something being done much better, I'm, I'm going to have a piece of that because that's great. That's that's how it should work. You know, yeah. social mobility is a, is a UK wide thing. It's not just an organisational thing. I can only affect my organisation, but we have to build for that whole UK social mobility agenda. This podcast is around increasing diversity and inclusion in the workplace. And the reason we're speaking about this topic today is because there is a huge problem in the UK when it comes to disadvantaged people getting into the workplace. 75% of employers require a GCSE equivalent for entry level roles and not everybody receives a GCSE. And it's not just education, it's nepotism too when it comes to internships and work experience for young people. So in your view, what do you think workplaces can do more to be more inclusive when it comes to hiring a diverse workforce and how can we tackle this issue? Um, I think one of the great things is apprenticeships, although I do think that sometimes on an apprenticeship, they want you to have those high levels in your your academics. Um, But I've always thought apprenticeships are learn as you go along. Mm Um, And I think that they need to make a lot more scope for young people to be able to learn on the job. Um, This is going back years and years ago, but I remember when I first um, left school, we had this, um, it was like a job opportunity thing. You You basically said what you was interested in and you would go along and you would do that job and then they would pay you at the end of the week, you'd tot off to the bank with your cheque and and you earn you earn money um but you also got the experience of working in a a professional organization Mm -hmm. now i think something like that should be brought back because not everybody is academic some people are super creative some people are 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 really empathic and can work well as a counselor um it it can't i think they focus too much around the academics and whereas I do understand that if you want to be a scientist, if you want to be a, I don't know, like a, you build railroads or something like that, you need the academics. You mm-hmm. do need you do need the maths and the science and the English and all the rest of it. However, if that's something that can be obtained while you're learning a job, um, it's better. It's mm. better. And, and you're teaching the children life skills. Um, I remember reading a few years ago that a lot of employers were saying that children were coming out of school without the most basic of skills, like being able to speak to someone, being able to maintain eye contact. Um, and for that reason, they weren't able to offer offer these jobs. Um, but these are all things that can be done in conjunction with a youth club. Mm-hmm. Um, if schools were to partner up with a youth club, there are elements of there of um so like work experience and things like that that a youth club can help with we work with um an organization called young west minister foundation and in turn one of their projects is um a project where they teach the young people all the skills that they'll need to get a job and then they work with loads of organizations um that will give them work experience. This organization is called Mastering My Future. And um, they definitely deal with the young people that come in on a one-to-one basis and enhance their abilities to um, to get a job. So I think, I think that's, I mean, 
on ground grassroots level that's what can be done to kind of like mm. be more inclusive um i think hiring people on their abilities and not just because they don't fit in um i've seen some organizations where you walk in and i've been like the only black person there mm-hmm. and not only is it uncomfortable for me um because I don't I mean my mom raised us to to say you can go anywhere your money is as good as anyone else's you do your thing you stand your ground however it's difficult if you're raised in a, an area that is predominantly black and then you go into an organization this is like when I first left school you go into an organization that is predominantly white people mm. um it, it's really difficult to make friends and to feel as though you're a part of that organization um i think sometimes organizations do one of two things they either leave you to kind of like to your own devices and you feel very alone or they overcompensate mm. <laughs> they overcompensate and then it um it makes things unbalanced again because they're giving you all of this stuff just because you're black and it needs it really does need to be on your ability to do that job sure. and i think i think that if you can sort of like weed that out things would be a lot more diverse yeah definitely i could not have said it better myself that is you put it perfectly and i think it just needs to be on an equal level level playing field and you get the job because of your talent not from what background you have or what yeah. what degree you don't have it should be whether mm. you are skilled enough to do the job you get it Carol, I have loved speaking to you so much today and I could go on for hours and hours, but I know we're running out (laughs) of time and I have one last question to ask you. So since the full picture is all about bringing your full self to work, what is one thing that your co-workers don't know about you? One thing, okay. So I have recently sent off for um, information to foster a child. Um, So... (laughs) So I'm hoping that once I have all the information and I'm registered, um, I can start fostering. That's so incredible. But you're the first person I've told. Oh my gosh, I feel so honoured. <laughs> I don't think they know that I, I'm a juggler. So Are you? I, 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 I can juggle pretty well. I'm not a brilliant juggler, but I can juggle. I can juggle five balls. And I can juggle three clubs and I can pass clubs and I can do fire. So, yeah. You can do fire. I was going to ask. Yeah. Wow. Always Look, good you are probably such an embarrassment to your little girls when you have a birthday party because you probably get the juggling stuff out to you. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it used to be okay when they were like three and four. That it was quite exciting. Now that, oh, dad, stop. Anymore. Put the flames yeah. away. Put the knives away. When the, the this... unicycle comes out, that's the problem. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Full Picture. Don't forget to rate, review and subscribe to hear more. Next week, we're commemorating the end of Pride Month with episode four, What's in a Name? I pretty much spent most of my life doing what I thought was expected of me. You know, living a role that I thought was expected of me. I suppose it got to a point uh, when I reached a certain age that uh, I I just couldn't do that anymore. The decision was to transition or, or, or not be here. So that's, that's kind of the stark reality that a lot of uh, uh, transgender people face. 
See you next time.